Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners across this strange nation or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. Yes, in case you're not in this strange nation, you can you can hear us too. Yes, I am David Hostetter in studio with Stefan Hostetter, Saren Kaster on the ones and twos and the microphone. In the second segment, we will also be joined by Lauren Latour. Yeah. And we've got there's a a lot of climate things are happening uh, right now with uh, with the throne speech yesterday, which we'll cover next week, uh, uh-huh. as well as as well as we're in the middle of COP twenty five, which okay. uh, which will end I believe it is it ends on the thirteenth, which means you probably will probably get a recap the the week after, mm. uh, given that a lot of the decision stuff doesn't get made till the end of the show, and also not to downplay this particular one, but no one thinks that this is going to be the, the, the big cop. If there's going to be another big one, it's, it's next year's. Because mm, okay. that is when the ratcheting up comes in, and also when, theoretically, the states you know is, might be more on board. You forgot to say spoiler alert, Stephen. Right, spoiler alert. Sorry, I should have... I should have <laughs> everyone who's following along with, uh, with the really, really vital news of uh, us trying to save the planet. But, uh, but, but yeah. it is a wonderful winter wonderland outside in Toronto, Canada. It is true. It is actually very nice outside. Um, but yeah, yeah, so this week we're covering a, a couple get, a couple requests uh, yes, from. Uh, we were asked to one of our listeners asked us to talk about citizens assemblies, which we are going to do in the first segment. In the second segment, we're also going to talk about we're going to talk about Jane McAlevey, an organizer, uh, and then we're going to talk about the uh, article out of Nature by scientists, which is. Uh, Frightening some people about tipping points. Yeah, that's actually quite useful to, just as, as like nine things to pay attention to, actually. Mm. If I was going to clickbait that section, it's nine okay. tipping points that might end the world. Word. Uh, and then in the final segment, we're going to talk about some green tech uh, innovations, which uh, which could be good. Yeah, again, one uh, came from a listener, and the second one uh, a, came, through the, came through the feed a, f- a few weeks ago. So Excellent. Yeah. So very much a, lish, a, a listener input on this show today. Yes. So keep sending those keep A listener-curated show. Exactly, yeah. So let's, uh, let's start with, well, why do Citizens we, Assemblies. Yeah, why are we talking about that? We're talking about Citizens Assemblies because they have been proposed by Extinction Rebellion as a solution to achieving their goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2025 and halting biodiversity loss by the same year. So I am going to just outline what citizens' assemblies are, how they've been used in Canada, and then talk about the Extinction Rebellion um, iteration of these. Cool. Of these. So, uh, ex- a citizens' assemblies. As uh, Ottawa U Associate Professor Michael Mann puts it, citizens' assemblies are institutions uh, distinct from legislatures, executives, and courts in which randomly selected citizens deliberate on public policy or law. Their use dates back to Athens, but they have been gaining more traction in the past few decades as a way to improve modern democracies. They have been used as state initiatives to deliberate on a variety of issues, including here in Canada, in British Columbia and Ontario, as well as the Netherlands, Ireland, Poland, and Australia, but are sometimes independent of the state, as in the G1000 in Belgium. They have, in their modern iterations, more often been used for electoral reform, but in Ireland, a citizens' assembly was able to legalize abortion within 12 weeks of pregnancy, and in the Polish city of Gdansk, an ongoing citizens' assembly meets regularly to produce binding policy decisions on major municipal issues. Their form can vary slightly from place to place, but in recent years, the general structure has been 
that the state decides the scope of the issue to be deliberated. The citizens are selected quasi-randomly in order to help ensure a representative demographic spread, and the members of the assembly are educated by experts about the topic. They then listen to input from the broader public, deliberate amongst themselves, and finally come out with a policy proposal which could be directly implemented, stated as a mere recommendation, or put to the people in a general referendum. Citizens' assemblies thereby bring power back to the people. They also directly implement the democratic ideal of deliberation, which concerns itself with figuring out what is the right thing to do, rather than what is merely the correct legal process to follow. This is a main tenet of deliberative democracy, of which uh, Michael Paul writes, quote, Deliberative democratic scholarship is being developed not just to posit the shape of ideal deliberation, but also to critique existing institutions and to develop new ones. Citizens' assemblies are examples of deliberative democratic theory in action. The Ontario and BC assemblies were intended to investigate alternative types of electoral systems, uh, but also to pioneer new models of deliberative decision-making. Being generally outside of the political realm, assembly members are also not as beholden to special interests. Citizens' assemblies can therefore greatly strengthen democratic discourse at a time when it's sorely needed. Paul points, for instance, to a decades-long trend away from collaborative, de collaborative and deliberative decision-making in Canadian legislatures and towards a concentration of power in the prime minister and premiers. Citizens' assemblies, on the other hand, not only undercut the problems of power concentration and a lopsided focus on political savvy in their very structure, but also because they select from the general population. The very ordinariness of the members can actually lead to better problem-solving than what might be possible in a group of people generally considered more suited to govern. That is, a greater analysis of an issue is possible when those involved represent the intellectual diversity of the population as opposed to being what are considered merely the greatest political minds. Not only do the members become something closer to experts in their own right through the process, but John Frere John, a law professor at NYU, points out that in BC, at least, the larger citizenry was motivated to become more knowledgeable about the subject as well, but perhaps not to the degree one might have helped. There are, of course, counter-arguments to these points, which my bias forbids me to go into here, but I will say that some issues to be wary about <clears throat> are... Who sets the agenda for the assembly, that is, who controls what matters are to be decided, who decides the scope of the assembly's power, and who decides how this power is implemented. In any case, the structure allows for broader public trust because the assembly members can be more open-minded than elective, elected representatives who are more likely to play politics than to deliberate collaboratively. They are, useful, they are therefore considered especially useful in implementing electoral reform, since political parties are not keen on altering the system that has just brought them into power. This was the reason for convening citizens' assemblies of 160 people in British Columbia and 103 people in Ontario in 2004 and 2006, respectively. In both cases, there was a wide initial selection, after which people who were selected could opt in or opt out, and then the group of respondents was narrowed down further according to demographics. The people who volunteered themselves, of course, tended to already be dissatisfied with the current system, which itself was not so representative, but this also meant that they were all very much committed to the process. They were then taught about different electoral systems used around the world, 
held public hearings, reviewed written submissions, deliberated on which system to recommend, and then voted on the different options. They were therefore not as deliberative as they could have been since they relied on a vote rather than consensus. In both instances, representation was skewed in favor of rural communities because the selection process required an equal number of members from each electoral district. This problem was compounded when some members of the assembly in BC felt that they were beholden to their home turf and fought for a system that would ensure the balance of power remained lopsided in their favor. But in both cases, the proposed systems were rejected in the final referendum. The ranked ballot system proposed in BC earned 57% approval, but the legislature had already decided a supermajority of 60% was needed, so it didn't pass. The legislature's unnecessary parameter of 60% thus effectively blocked electoral reform in BC in 2004. The mixed-member proportional representation system proposed in Ontario did not receive a majority of any kind, but this could have had something to do with the province failing to provide good public education campaigns. Some of the Assembly members argue that Elections Ontario didn't do its job in ensuring a meaningful broader public discourse around the findings of the Assembly, and Premier Dalton McGuinty uh, was free not to discuss the proposal at all. Thus, Michael Paul argues, quote, while the assemblies were admirably deliberative and innovative, they were insufficiently insulated from political interference, both when they were constituted and during the referendum stage. He recommends that in the future, Canadian citizens' assemblies be allowed to consider a broader range of interconnected issues, that geography not be central to the selection process, and that the referendum process be more carefully thought out. He wants, to con- he wants to confine their scope to findings uh, to things like campaign finance, party funding, electoral districting, and reform, which are things that we can't trust elected politicians to do impartially. Or at least he seems to want to do that. Indeed, an Angus Reid poll recently has shown that 84% of Canadians support a National Citizens' Assembly for electoral reform right now. In addition, 35% strongly support the idea, while only 6% strongly oppose it. And this is where we turn to Extinction Rebellion, which is demanding the implementation of a National Citizens' Assembly in the UK to figure out how to reduce carbon emissions to net zero and halt biodiversity loss by 2025. One of their arguments is that uh, rapid decarbonization requires such massive changes that only an assembly of this kind could wield the democratic legitimacy necessary to implement them. XR's uh, Linda Doyle recently gave a talk about how Extinction Rebellion views citizens' assemblies, in which she highlighted their role as mini-publics. This is the idea that assemblies, if done right, are able to, as Michael Paul puts it, approximate what deliberation could look like, would look like, among the entire population. Doyle also argues that electoral politics isn't well set up for dealing with long-term problems, that citizens' assemblies supplement parliament in a way that leads to a more advanced form of democracy which was not technologically feasible 200 years ago when the parliamentary system was implemented, and that there is no real leadership on climate change coming out of the current system as it stands. She presented the general process I have already outlined in which random selection is held, Experts and the public are consulted, facilitated deliberation occurs, and then they draft and vote on recommendations that the government then debates and votes on.
Importantly, she says that the experts who are educating the assembly would not just be academic experts, but also regular people on the front lines of climate change, such as some internal uh, climate migrants in the UK that are already having to retreat from the coast. She says the process should be public and transparent, and experts should be made to disclose their backgrounds. While they have their own model that they recommend for the assemblies, which includes having different panels for different problems like food security, housing, transport, and so forth, with a focus on social justice, XR wants an independent body to be set up to organize the process free from Extinction Rebellion and free from the government. They also want the government to commit publicly to implementing any recommendation with over 80% support in any given panel. The government must also provide a rationale for accepting, modifying, or rejecting any recommendation that has less than 80% support. Everyone in the process would be paid for their time. Yeah, so I would say that's probably the – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there and say that is unquestionably the most in-depth uh, review of Citizen Assemblies uh, – Probably ever aired on the station. This mm. is my. This is my. This is my. Okay. Uh, this is my I'll belief. It. Um, and I, the first thing I, I, I think there's a couple different ways to get at this. This the first is sort of it as a as a process. Uh, the second is it is it as a demand for for protests. You know, it as a part of the a, a part of the requirement for protests specifically. And then the third is sort of the the ways that it you the, the, the solutions and things you might want to think about it could come out of it. And so the the first I want to start though with with it as a demand because it is a demand I think actually is is brilliant a little bit. Um because I, when you're talking about when you when you, when you need to get larger and larger groups of people on board towards sort of calling the government to do a thing um, or or demanding change the the hardest thing is to get th- that many people to agree on on what needs to get done especially when you get started get, getting bogged down in the details you know when you saw you saw sort of the the, the all the mo- mo- motivation and, and energy that came out of say occupy uh, that that sort of moved in this general direction, uh, but at, ultimately there wasn't the the that diverse set of people could not come to a set of demands that they actually wanted to necessarily move forward, and that was sort of you know because they were so committed to to this to sort of you know to all their different ideals, it got them stuck a little bit in their ability to actually push. You know, I would say that there's conversations here about how they succeeded in changing narratives. You know, the idea of the one percent I think can can very much be be in some ways credited to that movement, but there, there was not a list of demands ever that sort of was that that, that could have then put put forward. There wasn't necessarily a way uh, a way that the government could have responded that would have been th- seen as satisfactory, and. The idea that your demand is not for you know a thirty-seven dollar price on carbon, or if what we actually need is a hundred and sixty-four dollar price on carbon, or you know a demand is you know X Y Z, it is it is just that you have to put in this place and give power to this assembly to to actually address this problem. A rational democratic solution. Yeah, well, it, it, I think it, I think it just it really does give you a uh, it's it's a much easier organizing structure. And a much easier conversation to be having. You're like, look, we are clearly not doing anything, um, but uh, and we should be doing something. And so, w- how do we do this? Well, let's give a group of people an, a power to, to to activate this and and go forth. And so, like from that perspective, I, I, I really do think it's it's a great idea. But Sam wants to jump in. Uh, just I wanted to share an interesting perspective on Occupy, not mine. That's mm-hmm. why I'm saying it that way. But right. I heard it. I found it very interesting, and I wanted. I think it's relevant. I wanted to share, which yeah. was just that, you know, w- what Occupy actually. So so here, from this point forward, someone else's words, right. okay? Uh, 
was that the real impact of Occupy was not that it tried to do something and failed. And it's that it was a starting place and in a very specific way. And it was that it was the, you know, with the similar, with the similar idea around mental health, which is that often the first step in, in helping yourself with the mental health issue is realizing that it's not you that's broken, that people suffer this. This is a mm-hmm. human condition, right? Mm-hmm. That, that empathy and that feeling of not being alone. And that really that Occupy was the first time in North America that we, we all stepped into the streets and realized that we weren't the only ones suffering from the system and that then the real work could begin. Mm. Not my thought. Uh, I don't necessarily would have phrased it that way if it was for me, but I think it's worth sharing. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it's, yeah, like like I think the fact that you, it gives power to recognize that you're not the only person who thinks this way, 100%. Um, and and I think that's in part, to get into the, the little more the, the nitty gritty of, of what the system could look like, I, I am quite interested in the ways that it it, it failed in, in, in BC, or no, I guess I didn't necessarily fail, but that, that, that their agreements were not moved forward, um, as well as Ontario. Yeah, well, BC had a majority vote. Yes, right. But they didn't reach 60%, right. whereas the, Ontario didn't get the majority. Right, right. But in BC, they tried again, and they I think they more recently, and they actually actually got even a lower set of yeah, I think it was 2009 they tried again and nobody was down for it. Yeah. But um but anyways, but I but what's interesting about this is that there is very clearly a setup that is that that the 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 first set uh, of recommendations is actually a pretty good, you know, what's interesting is is how you phrase the question. It makes a ton of sense to me in in forms of 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 electoral reform. Like that makes it's it's you know it's quite simple, not simple, but the box is pretty obvious. Like how we vote for our leaders, uh, it makes sense to pull out of the system. I'm honestly a little bit sort of wondering why there wasn't a stronger push to actually use this system when Trudeau was looking at it in uh, in the last four years. Like if they were going to be seriously to, to deal with this, um, obviously hiring the uh, hiring themselves to make this call was going to be a bad idea, yeah. and and I, I really thought that that was actually pretty obvious. Like even when they started, they brought together that sort of the group of. Stakeholders, they the, the stakeholders were all different elected politicians. They all would have had their own best interests. And if you're actually trying to get this solved, that is just obviously not the way to go about it, you know. And and so I am sort of it, it does feel like a missed opportunity to actually use this system at that point if they really wanted to, to get something done. Now, did they really get one to get something done? That's a different question. Um, but 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 what's interesting is, is is imagining it as a question for climate change because. In part, I guess the question starts with the framing of the question. You mentioned this is one of the sort of big questions. Who sets the frame? Because if the frame is, what do we need to do to keep under 1.5 degrees? Then you're giving a fair amount of power across the board to this. You know, And then you're already steering them in some direction. The answer is already doing something. Well, one thing, sorry, what Michael Paul noted was that uh, the... In, in the Canadian examples that we just talked about, mm. the question was very limited, very narrow. Right. It was yep. just what, uh, what, what should we replace the current electoral reform system with? Mm-hmm. However, in Australia, they had uh, citizens assemblies, which had a much broader uh, scope to, their, to what they could deliberate about. Mm. So there was, it, was, it was a much more open question. Mm. And so they were, actually to, they were actually able to look at the issue in a wider range, which he argued was actually better. Mm. That the more open-ended question was better, right? Well, that that, that, does, that does make sense. I'm curious, what, the, the int- 
what's interesting about again try to transpose this, and I actually I haven't done the research, so I'd be interested to know what uh, XR uh, Canada or XR Toronto uh, have uh, where they stand on, on the use of citizen assemblies, specifically because the question of like where would they be positioned? Because you could position like the federal government could put in uh, could in one, but th- their ability to actually do stuff is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. So the solutions that could be come out of that as a, as from a federal perspective would actually be would wouldn't really have a lot of tools to their uh, in their in their tool shed because mm-hmm. they don't have that sort of power to make provinces do anything. And so and so I'm wondering if the if it would be more useful to actually place these things say across every single province um, if you're really going to try to use this in in the Canadian context to tackle to tackle climate change mm-hmm. uh, because you know if you can't control how you get energy um, or um, you know or transportation or cities then then you're you're sort of limited to to taxing which is basically what Trudeau has gone to do right he's just decided to go tax everything mm-hmm. um, oh, and, and I should say that I say that flippantly but the way the carbon tax actually works is that you are actually getting more money back into your pockets unless you are a high level carbon emitter. And so it is while while it is a, a tax, it is not actually harming the everyday person in the way that people understand or, or the boogeyman tax idea that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so but yeah, but so, so I, I, I think that it's interesting to to ask yourselves because like that adds another layer of question to the, to how how well you can inform this uh, this group of like okay also this is your power <laughs> like you know here's here you can have a very open end question but if you don't explain if they, if they don't have a good idea of exactly what actually is 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 you need what actually is in their scope of ability mm-hmm. then you have another then you're sort of back to square one and again. the referendum model will not be good for climate change. Because there are too many decisions to be made. Yeah, exactly. Well, the referendum model would probably require them to have, you know, a, a yeah, just basically a, a yes, no on what would probably be a relatively broad sweeping set of plans, which would be tough to to, to legislate for sure. With yeah, we could. There's also the, the question of the size of the citizens' assembly. We could have te- potentially quite large. Uh, Right. Assemblies, right? Given the technology, yeah, yeah, and, and there's actually some there's there's some work done in some other cities around the world that are really leveraging technology to to do these sort of versions of this in, in much wider ways. But we're, we're sort of coming up to the music break, so so how about we go to a go to a break and we'll come back uh, with with Lauren to talk about Jane McAlvey and and it, from that I actually I do have a jumping off point that sort of circles back to this a little bit. So we'll come back to this in half a second. Well, we had a listener request for Diamond Ring, so we're going to do that now. Stop and teach your racing heart how to pray Because I'm not ready to reciprocate devotion And I just don't want to see him make a mistake The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, continuing to bring you the sound of your city. Unless you were listening on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca or whatever RSS feed you use to get those podcasts. Do we have Lauren Latour? You do. So exciting. (laughs) Is it a beautiful winter wonderland in Ottawa like it is in Toronto? You know what it is, and while I'm inside my bedroom gazing out the window, I'm enjoying it. I'm going to be on the highway for several hours this mm. evening, like not mm. looking forward to that. But right now, it's a, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, I feel like yes. that's the only way. You got to enjoy it when it's enjoyable to make the rest <laughs> of it worth it, right? You got to got to live really hard in the moments that are nice. Wow, that's like, but like that can be applied to anything in life, you know. Uh, enjoy I, it, while, enjoy, <laughs> get it while it's good. <laughs> 
Stefan, the king of your morning platitudes. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about uh, the organizer Jane McAlevey for a second here. All right. So Jane McAlevey is a scholar and a union organizer from New York and has long argued for the centrality of union organizing when it comes to positive social change, and has also brought this perspective to the climate movement, penning a piece back in March for Jacobin in which she argues that the labor movement must be central to winning a Green New Deal and reversing climate change, and that recent labor victories in the United States prove that rapid change is possible from the ground up. Keep in mind, obviously, that her perspective is American, but it can still help those of us in Canada think more critically about the climate organizing here. Uh, McAlevey explained a main pillar of her argument earlier in the year for the nation in which she argues that a successful strategy must start with an analysis of the power structure. In the U.S., then, she argues that the courts are not going to work because the recent Supreme Court changes, uh, because of the recent Supreme Court changes, and that elections are becoming harder to influence. And so in addition to working on elections, organizers need to focus on the economic arena, in which, uh, which means implementing mass strikes to strategically disrupt corporations. She outlines strike support as demanding that all, political, all politicians support uh, all workers' real right, real right to strike. Uh, I did not edit these notes. This is a train wreck. I'm sorry. <laughs> All politicians support all workers' real right to strike, uh, supporting workers in person on the picket lines. That's what, that's what we should do. And we should call media and politicians to tell them that you stand with the workers. In another video about union organizing with nurses, she makes a distinction between what she called deep organizing and shallow mobilization. In Jacobin, uh, Jacobin McAlevey notes that the largest federation of labor unions in the United States, the AFL-CIO, called the Green New Deal unachievable and unrealistic. She writes, quote, We need considerably more than a bold vision to get labor to come out swinging for the Green New Deal, arguing that the left needs to get serious about green jobs, and quoting union organizer Nato Green as saying, quote, Any seasoned union campaigner worth her salt loves a con contract fight because it has a hard deadline that focuses everyone's attention, expiration, and a strike threat. Climate science gives us a new deadline and an opportunity to show that we're up to the task. We have 12 years. She then argues that the kind of advocacy, mass march mobilizing, and legal strategies that she says environmentalists have tended towards over the years, rather than the uh, more difficult um, building of a mass movement, that uh, we should do the latter. She points to strikes that happened through 2018 across the U.S. that won major victories in a short amount of time. She then highlights a recent union victory on the climate front in New York between 2014 and 2017, when, after some major hurricanes in the state, union workers educated themselves for several years about climate change from scientists and renewable energy workers, eventually authoring a, rep a report called Reversing Inequality Combating Climate Change, uh, a, climate a Climate Jobs Program for New York State, which was endorsed by the unions, who then leveraged their power to commit the state to getting half of its total energy from renewable offshore wind by 2035. Uh, 
McAlevey writes, quote, The deal happened in New York precisely because the unions had the power to shift public subsidies, that's taxes, into a deal that enabled them to meet both scientific standards for emissions reduction and the good unionized wage and benefit standards that union members expect and are willing to fight for. She then argues that only union organizing through mass strikes has the power to tax the $4.8 trillion in cash currently held by corporations and access the $22.1 trillion in potential corporate investments to, quote, quickly shift the economy to a robust unionized green economy, one that can reproduce a dignified quality of life for workers of the future and end the destructive jobs versus environment debate. She concludes, quote, to actually institute a Green New Deal means rebuilding a robust public sector. A robust public sector means a future filled with good jobs for women and people of color. But the right-wing attacks on what's left of the public sector and its unions are going to continue with no end in sight. It's not too late for environmentalists and all progressive allies to decide to really stand with workers and their unions, but there's no time to waste. Good unions understand best how to run a hard fight with a serious deadline. It's time for the 2030 war room now. All right. Uh, so, throw to you uh, first, Lauren. Yeah, um, I was super stoked by this piece. I'm really, really glad we're talking about it. Um, I think I think she launches like really valid criticism towards the green, um, the green movement, um, maybe specifically the green left, um, because we do focus a lot on what she considers to be sort of shallow mobilization. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's to our detriment. Um, I'm not, I'm not launching any criticism at any specific organization or group here. This is just sort of general. Um, but yeah, so like something like, like a March, I know we point to marches all the time because they've been so prevalent the last few years. And they're so effective um, at showing strength and numbers and to make people feel like they're part of something bigger um, and that and that, and that people aren't sort of just like despairing alone in, in their bedrooms or whatever. But um, we know, we, we know this, and, and she's sort of reiterating it to us and sort of maybe, maybe trying to communicate it in a slightly different way. But unless we then organize on the ground for really tangible change to, to things like contracts um, at work or, or legislation um, or municipal or provincial policy – then, then unfortunately, those marches, as wonderful as they feel and as great as they are and empowering in the moment, they unfortunately kind of amount to sort of little more than like satiation, I think, to a degree. Um, and she's also like super duper right in saying that a Green New Deal specifically requires a really, really, really robust public sector. And again, that's something we know because that that is that is sort of the New Deal aspect of the Green New Deal that we pull from all the time is, is we point to change that was made in the 30s. And, and looking at that sort of really robust public sector and look at all these amazing government jobs that, that people were able to get restoring um, natural habitats and, and, and building new infrastructure. But but frankly, like, um, yeah, so we need to see that happen. And one of the best ways is, is, is what she says is sort of like unions are already doing this work to a degree. Um, and I think what we in the environmental movement need to do instead of thinking we need to come in and rewrite the and like rewrite everything and start from scratch is is that we need to figure out how to figure out how to support unions in the work they're already doing support their strikes unionize our own workplaces or, or get active in our unions if if we already are in them and and communicate with with locals in our communities um, to figure out how we can be of service um, and and we need to realize that like doing the doing work like this is climate action just as much as attending a march is or going to a rally is. Um, 
and we also, and, and this is just sort of a small thing, we have to be really careful about sort of continuing to co-op strike language. I feel like we use that language mm-hmm. all the time, and a lot of us don't actually understand how a strike plays out or the gravity of the language of striking within the labor movement because it means something very specific and it has a lot of legal weight behind it. Um, and I think sometimes we just kind of toss it around without sort of backing it up with that tangible support of the labor movement um, and the work they do to bring sort of equity and strength to workers. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was. It's funny you mentioned that the last bit because it, it, it's. I remember talking to talking to someone who's in who's a who's a teacher uh, a while back about about some teacher strikes and and how like there's about how one strike got entirely sort of undone because a person brought the wrong sign to it and it was like no there's legal rules about how you can do this and there's like very mm-hmm. specific requirements and it sort of brought the reality of of just how actually um, particular the the rules are around this sort of interplay. Um, and, and, and how, and how, you know, the climate strike for climate when you're striking for schools is, is a, is an, is, is, is really, it's not, it's not what, what is meant by a strike when an actual strike is called, right? There's a a very, there's fundamentally quite different. Um, but I, but isn't, I, I am curious and always we'll see as we move forward in history, um, how much this sort of, I, the, you, the, 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 as you mentioned, co-opting or the uses of the term strike in these, in the sense of say, you know, the student strikes. Um, will all, I'm curious if they will make it more palatable to have what would be real mm-hmm. strikes. Um, if, if that they're already sort of, it's, if it's seen as part of the same continuum or if it will actually cause a, a, a divergence between those two conversations. I, I think if I can jump in, yeah. I, I think you might be right. I think it does sort of lay some of that groundwork because you do see like sort of statistically in studies that have been done. Unfortunately, I'm not citing anyone specifically right now, but we do see sort of a rise in labor and union support amongst younger people. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because we over the last couple of years, maybe a year, have, have grown quite accustomed to to hearing language that has roots in the labor movement, hearing, hearing about strikes, hearing about that power of labor organizing. And I think, and I think uh, people in younger generations specifically are sort of starting to come back around to these ideas that there's power and strength and that unions are beneficial. Whereas I think for, for quite some time, like sort of like from like Reagan, like mm-hmm. Reagan on, um, there's, a, there's been a lot of union busting that's happened over the last couple decades. And it's, and it's, been of real disservice to unions, but also to labor, to the labor movement in general and the strength of workers in general. So I think the fact that we maybe are starting to use this language is beneficial in that, it, in that, like you said, it's sort of socializing us with these ideas and and sort of reiterating that no, these are positive things. Well, and, and you start seeing yourself as the striker rather than the person affected by it, right? Like it, it, the moment yeah. you know, even if you even if you even if your striking action is striking against going to school for a day, that still makes you the person who now identifies as a person who's you know who's done something. That with this language versus people who are, you know, who are not basically, you know, versus like if your only experience of strikes is, oh, I can't ride the bus today um, or, you know, anything else. You, you, I think it puts you at odds with the people who maybe you, you're actually maybe more aligned with um, in, in, in all the different ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I want to I, briefly I do want to get to the concept, the slightly larger concept of, of, of sort of some of the interesting ways and in one particular interesting way that I think a union in, in, in Canada has, has tried to put itself front and forward within this sort of conversation. Um, 
uh, which is I've I've recently I don't know how I don't know how well socialized this is, but the concept that of the postal workers union and their delivery delivering community power plan. Yeah, because it, it, what I find so interesting about that about about it, and so the, the, I don't want to get too deep in details, but basically it, it's a pu- it's a push from postal worker union who's realizing that sort of that they have all this infrastructure that still exists that is becoming less needed in a sending mail perspective, but still could be very useful in many other perspectives, you know. And so I believe it includes an idea of of, of turning some of them becoming mail banking. There's a there's a there's a green energy a, a aspect to it. There's a electrical transportation aspect to it. And what I find so interesting about it is when we talk about a Green New Deal, that would require so such a vast change in policy and a vast change that that it's hard to imagine what individual little pieces of this of, of it would be. Like, what does the entire aspect look like? And what's interesting here is that here's one example that I think does a pretty good job of balancing, A, the need for systemic change, B, by the preservation of good jobs um, for, for, for people, and, and C, reducing carbon. It, it feels like it's like they've sort of gone out and done the work a little bit and, and can bring it back to be like, hey, this is like this is one thing that you could plug into a wider set of things that we've already done the work. We've done the thinking through it. And you'd already have support of this of this organization to, to move it forward. And that's huge. Like the social having having the unions already be on board. And that's a big thing that we didn't get into exactly. But like I think this this her um, I think that uh, McKelvey's uh, position, I think has two parts of it. One is that we have to do organizing within unions for them to under- see themselves in the green transition and also needing to support them externally as a, you know, as, as part of a, as, as part of a movement. Um, and, and this feels like a way like to already have one public sector union really could be on board for this green transition, I think would be, a, would go a long way. Absolutely. No. And, and, and mentioning delivering community power is, is I'm, I'm glad we did that because it is, so cool what they've been doing and they've been doing it for a really long time they've been like delivering community power has been a campaign that's been running within um uh not uh cupw for for years now far far before the term green new deal started being tossed around in in canada um so yeah it's, it's an example of just how something how has sort of those those ideas around a green new deal can be carried out in practice um, and it's an, it's also an example of, of how labor is already sort of leading the movement and always has been. Um, yeah, and so I'm really glad we talked about this article. Also, because like in addition to sort of mobilizing within unions, supporting unions externally, I think we also have a lot to learn as as sort of maybe people who consider themselves activists or organizers. We have a lot to learn from labor movement history and labor movement theory and praxis um, and how they've been operating for the last. <laughs> hundred years or so, um, because they have been such an effective force, even, even if the everyday person doesn't know it, right? Like, I mean, like I often, I say that when I'm talking to young people about the power of, of, of mobilization is that like the reason you have a weekend is because of the labor movement. The reason there's a minimum wage and you make a living wage, hopefully is because of the strength of the labor movement at, at one point in history. Um, so they have a lot of very clear, tangible wins, which is something that that the environmental movement is always trying to kind of scratching our head as to why we don't have. So I think we have a lot to learn from them. And I think a lot of it comes from that, what the what the writer sort of pulled at was like sort of deep organizing and building very strong relationships, not just within a community, but but within within an within a work environment or, or within a specific relationship. Um, and that's how we build sort of 
trust and solidarity and strength together. Yeah, yeah. I was. I, it's funny that you you pulled that out. I was struck by that that idea, the difference between deep organizing, and shallow mobilization as well, because there is this uh, when, especially when you look at you know some of the some of the. I, I, I'm currently reading um, reading a book that's sort of about community building and and, and trying to get things done, um, which is called Emergent Strategy, and it and in it it sort of it highlights this exact thing. It highlights almost the exact idea that like systems change happens when people are knit together with deep roots. Um, you know, it, it almost begins with a sort of criticism of, of, of a broad but shallow and an and, 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 and encouragement for, for deep but short. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that ends up being, uh, being so true. And I think that's sort of, that's what you get when you get these sort of like these, like environmentalism has become almost like a vague ideal rather than a tangible community. And and I, and that was you know largely I think throughout the '90s as as people sort of it became a thing like recycle became a big thing it sort of divert it sort of pushed it pushed this concept of it as, as an organizing thing and more so as an ideal that everyone could hold you know it's, it's interesting it's 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 almost it stopped being sort of a a a, a, a in, as, as, as individual set of people, but rather became the sort of everyone's an environmentalist and that, that that sort of allowed for that greenwashing and that sort of weakening of the of the movement I think. Um, but but we are now running out of time, so we'll have to come to the tipping points in the next segment. Um, but uh, but do you have any last thoughts before we go to music break? You know what? I guess the only thing is, once you all do start talking about tipping points and people start to get depressed, because I've seen the notes, it's gonna it's it's gonna be a bummer, folks. But come back to this conversation that we've had and remember that, like, yes, time is running out, and we're all freaking out, and we're sad all the time. But through effective organizing and through effective community building. We can turn we can we can turn the ship around, or at least sort of avoid the worst of the iceberg. Yes, that's actually a good point because it does get real depressing. As a heads up, if you're the last segment of the show, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, what do you listen to, Saren? More diamond rings. We got a request. We're gonna we're gonna maximize it. Here you go. Welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city, or on our appreciated radio syndicate partners across this this uh, this patchwork land, or on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. I am David Hostetter, in studio with Stefan Hostetter and Saren Kaster. Lauren Latour has gone back to her window gazing. And uh, we're going to get in in this third segment to a Nature article about tipping points. And uh, then we're going to talk about two green tech solutions to carbon. Yes. So, and, and one of those was requested by that by listeners, so we'll get to that hopefully. And But let's start with the depressing fact. The scientific journal Nature published an article arguing that uh, the growing threat of abrupt and irreversible climate changes must compel political and economic action on emissions. It is yet another shrill scholarly shriek of warning about climate tipping points that we may or may not have already passed. It argues that there is more and more evidence of the increasing likelihood of cascading climate catastrophes triggering one another in a worldwide slew of of ecosystem breakdowns that could alter planetary systems for millennia. The scientists aim to, quote, help to define that we are in a climate emergency and strengthen this year's chorus of calls for urgent climate action. 
from school children to scientists, cities, and countries. They point out that the IPCC first introduced the notion of tipping points 20 years ago, but originally thought that only a warming of five, over 5 degrees Celsius would put us at risk of triggering them. But over the years, that number has gotten lower and lower to the point where even warming of 1 degree Celsius, which we have already reached, puts us at a low to moderate risk of global collapse. They also point out that some economists have thought that from a cost-benefit perspective, 3 degrees Celsius of warming is optimal, but that this is utter madness as these tipping points look more likely. I might add that even if they weren't, such a cost-benefit analysis in the face of growing inequality and the millions of people on the front lines who will never look these economists in the eye is already a hideously inhumane calculation of the kind that can only be made by the type of people who the system is already built to serve. The authors who believe that ice collapse is already dangerously close argue that no matter how close or how far we are from the tipping points or if we've already passed them, greenhouse gas mitigation is still the, of the utmost importance in terms of slowing them down, giving us more control over them as they occur or even avoiding them entirely. They produce a map of nine triggers across the globe that could have a domino effect. The triggers are droughts in the Amazon, loss of Arctic sea ice, slowing Atlantic ocean currents, fires and pests in the boreal forest, large-scale die-offs of the coral reefs, accelerating ice loss in Greenland, thawing permafrost, and accelerating ice loss in both East and West Antarctica. I won't go into all the various heart-wrenching scenarios, but I will note that they say that 99% of tropical corals are projected to die if global warming exceeds 2 degrees Celsius. The authors conclude, quote, We argue that the intervention time left to uh, prevent tipping could al already have shrunk towards zero, whereas the reaction time to achieve net zero emissions is 30 years at best. Hence, we might already have lost control of whether tipping happens. A saving grace is that the rate at which damage accumulates from tipping and hence the risk posed, could still be under our control to some extent. The stability and resilience of our planet is in peril. International action, not just words, must reflect this. Yeah, so there's a... There, I'm, I'm going to go on a bit of a walk here, but I'll, I'll bring it back, I promise. There's a very good uh, short clip of Alexandria uh, uh, Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, coming out uh, on a conversation about healthcare. When she's basically pointing out that economics and, and a lot of the, in the fundamental thought process of economics that that there is that that price uh, that that price can push that, that that how much you're willing to pay for something um, is uh, is able to fluctuate you know depending on how much you need it for example and that that will come to a that will come to some sort of resting point on how much value a life is a, 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 an item is worth that if people aren't willing to pay more then 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 they'll have to bring it down and that will sort of become a come a position and her point basically is that that breaks down in healthcare because people will pay all the money they have to live like you can't consider like you can't consider your own uh, your own life as a as a as a as a fungible good that can that can have a price that, that that you are willing no one says i'll spend $75,000 on on surviving but $100,000 is not allowed mm -hmm. or, or that's too much money for me unless you can't afford it of course right so and, and, and what's interesting about this is that, to, to bring it back here, is there's a level of which that is also true when econo economists say 30 mil, you know, three degrees warming is, is ideal. 
you know, it like that it, you can only say that if you're not the people who lose their home, their 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 entire country uh, or their lives. Right. Like this is this is fundamentally uh, the idea that you can consider or and, and that's also forget as a quick aside, that doesn't even include the concept of ecosystems having uh, inherent value. You know, the value of the, the, the coral reef does not only exist in the monetary value that it provides Australia for tourism or protection from other from other goods. It, it has value in and of itself. And I think that this constant conversation that surrounds the sort of the the measured medium sort of the the idea that economists economists are these uh, rational beings uh, that that will that will provide a, a best case scenario. It's like okay, three degrees, you know, a. It, Oh, un- underscores how much we don't know actually about what what we could get into, right? Like these tipping points will ignore that, but also B, it fundamentally presumes that that there's value that 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 you can put a value on human life. They can put a value on on what it means to 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 grow old on the land that you were born in, you know. And it presumes as va- you can have a particular value in any of these intangible things that are just you know that are human rights um, or earth rights, you know, or that are and so. It's it, I, have, I have trouble with this sort of concept, um, but and, and it, what's up, what I will say uh, about these tipping points is that it is interesting and useful to have sort of these sets because like we talk about the show a lot uh, about the one tipping point uh, mainly because I have I've read, read up on it a little bit more which is the idea that emissions will can we can lose control of emissions uh, once the permafrost melts because of methane release. However, I have not done a lot of research on what it looks like when um, when if, if the slowing of the Atlantic Ocean currents occurs. I've like I I don't I don't know what that means in in a in a in a, in a, in a tangible sense. Nor so, necessary do the scientists all that much either. Right, but the it fact means that, we start broadcasting from a hot air balloon above the Atlantic. Oh, okay, <laughs> all right. Well, that's you know, always living on a hot air balloon Atlantic is a particular decision. But you know, I could I could do that for a show. Imagine Waterworld, but much more interesting. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, but, but this is like, what's interesting about this is that it shows the interconnectedness and the, and the fact that we really, really don't know what might happen. And, and so the, and so it it lends credence to this concept of do everything as quickly as possible. You know, like there can't, it, it, it fundamentally goes against the concept of like finding the perfect balance. Like we're, we, 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 we've lost, we're losing control and we could t- completely lose control of our, of Earth systems. Yeah, the precautionary principle. Yeah. We exactly. don't know how likely it is that everything will be destroyed, but we know that there's a likelihood. Yeah, exactly. Man, I, I, I had not heard the precautionary principle since harking back to the, to my undergrad days. I had forgotten about that whole concept, but important. Let's resurrect it. Yeah, exactly. Let's bring it back. Uh, but, uh, but I do want to get to those two stories. So let's go to the CO2 filtering So engineers at MIT have developed a new way to take CO2 out of the air. It is the first device that can capture CO2 at any level of concentration, meaning it could be developed, be be deployed anywhere. It is essentially a battery connected to tubes which allow air to pass through the cells. When the cells are being charged, a reaction takes place on their surface which naturally attracts carbon dioxide, thus removing it from the circulating air. When the battery is being used, the carbon dioxide is released. Thus, you can suck the carbon from the air and take it it somewhere else to store it or even make more fuel from it. As David Chandler writes for MIT News, quote, In some soft drink bottling plants, fossil fuel is burned to generate the carbon dioxide needed to give the drinks their fizz. Similarly, some farmers burn natural gas to produce carbon dioxide to feed their plants in greenhouses. The new system could eliminate that need for fossil fuels in these applications and in the process actually be taking the greenhouse gases right out of the air. 
Alternatively, the pure carbon dioxide stream could be compressed and injected underground for long-term disposal, or even made into fuel through a series of chemical and electro electrochemical processes. Sahag Voskin, who developed the uh, technology, who helped develop the technology, is calling it revolutionary because, quote, all of this is at ambient conditions. There is no need to, for thermal pressure or chemical input. It's just these very thin sheets with both surfaces active that can be stacked in a box and connected to a source of electricity. Chandler writes, quote, compared to other existing carbon capture technologies, this system is quite energy efficient, using about one gigajoule of energy per ton of carbon dioxide captured consistently. Other existing methods have energy consumption which can vary between one to ten gigajoules per ton depending on the inlet uh, carbon dioxide concentration. The researchers have set up a company called Verdox to commercialize the process and hope to develop a pilot scale plant within the next few years. Yeah, so this is good news. Um, you know, as much as we should remember the conversation in the middle, uh, also we can remember that there are people, there are people across sectors, across spaces working on, on this kind of thing. Um, I will caveat that fact that is good news with the fact that the first article that was sent to us by a listener, I believe said that was framed as, did we solve climate change? Um, and I, I just, whenever you see that sentence, presume it's the same as saying we saw, we cured cancer. Like, like all, like, unless, uh, like, the, the level of which a revolution would have to occur uh, for one particular innovation to suddenly solve climate change is so beyond the scope of, of, what, of, of anything that I know that anyone is currently working on. You know, they could literally invent a, you know, a, um, you know, cold fusion tomorrow and that still would be a very difficult time to uh to, to to be able to roll out in time so just be careful whenever you hear that but Sarah and Jim. Uh, yeah what could possibly go wrong we figured out this new technology that drastically works with something in our atmosphere and we roll it out expansively across the world as fast as we can <laughs> and use it as much as possible that couldn't possibly go wrong no exactly yeah maybe it's 100 years we'll have a whole no time for <laughs> testing folks let's roll it out it's everywhere <laughs> um but i will say that uh that these types of things actually really do and are important um it, it, it looks like you know it's our this is only in small scale it, it will face barriers uh that especially as you try to make anything commercially viable you only learn where things don't work when you start running pilots and how, how you can build it at scale um and the fact that they're thinking about targeting places that need co2 uh, hints at the fact that it would really be a sec it needs a secondary market you know someone has to be buying the co2 to make it worth it um uh, which 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 uh, which means that it as a as an industrial scale co2 sucker that just throws CO2 somewhere is is probably a ways away. And and again, you know, this is probably given that we have 12 years, this if they're just doing a pilot, this is this is a thing that might help us with mitigation at some point down the road, but is not a reason to not start planting every tree you possibly can. Uh, but I do want to get to concentrated solar because it's interesting. A company called Heliogen has come out with a solar oven made up of a group of a thousand uh, computer-controlled mirrors that concentrate sunlight to create heat over 1,000 degrees Celsius, which can be used to create cement, steel, glass, and other materials almost entirely carbon-free. It has the potential to address the carbon problem in industries that make up over a fifth of global emissions. The company used machine learning technologies to train the, a field of mirrors to work in concert. The heat could also be used to create clean-burning hydrogen fuel. The green heat could become cheaper than uh, heat derived from fossil fuel because no one has to pay for sunlight. Yeah, so this actually is, like, it's, it is much closer as a technology uh, to be able to be commercially viable, 
which is important, uh, given the speed at which it is. And it addresses, and it has a very clear way to address uh, what is a massive problem, which is cement. Um, like the amount of amount of carbon ingrained in cement is not just because not because of itself, but the, because you have to uh, of all the of the the natural the fossil fuels required to, to create it is huge, and and so a a an ability to a make it price parity and b rem, d, d, make it almost carbon neutral to make cement is huge. Now, of course. The interesting, it requires sunlight. So it requires a, you. You had to build these in places where you are actually specifically getting mostly sunlight. So you know this is not a kind of thing that could be run all the time, which is probably a, which I would be interested to know how they would work that out. I, I think that where they may, built it is basically a place that mostly receives sun, but still an important part of it. Um, but but what's interesting about this is that there's that this is is this is one example of many different ways that people are trying to focus on the carbon intensity of concrete. You know, there's a there's another organization that's that's currently working um, out in Alberta. There's, a, there's a, the whole Carbon X Prize, which I'm not sure if I've mentioned on the show before, but it's a it was a it was a it's a big competition that's being run to try to find different ways to pull uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. That's sort of the indifferent or or to to reduce emissions as much as possible within an industrial scale as as carbon capture and storage type stuff. And there's right now one type of concrete that's actually working to, to absorb that. That's a different process, but it's looking to absorb it already um, in, a, in an entirely different way. They put so, the carbon into the concrete. I'm not. Yeah, I, I don't want to say exactly what they do because I would I would have to do some research. But but I, what's in, what I, what I want to highlight is that this is that concrete, especially trying to find ways to decarbonize car- concrete. Is a is a big uh, expansive project that's that that many people are working on, and and I and I think this is you know to tie back to sort of the the two conversations before these are the types of things that that ro- that could be rolled out um, you know in in a in a broad response to climate change you know the the necessity to use carbon neutral co- concrete in say an extensive amount of like what we'll need is probably a massive in, in like countrywide infrastructure build like that's that's the first thing you do you need massive infrastructure and the amount of concrete you need there is pretty high so if you only pull down concrete that is that is carbon neutral uh, you're suddenly make a massive market for this and you can and then and then and then that is a way to to to, to leapfrog and move forward and so there's all these different things that come into it uh, but we are actually now at 11.59, so I so I want to wrap it up the show. Uh, thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, thank you for Lauren for joining, joining us in the middle segment. Uh, next week, we have a whole bunch of news about, about COP, maybe, and all, but definitely about uh, the governments here in Ontario and Canada on climate. Uh, and we'll be hopefully joined by our friends at National Observer. So that'll be fun. Have a great green week, everyone, and uh, we'll see you all real soon.